How do we measure greatness? From the roar of an admiring crowd or the shine of a trophy? Or is it the breadth of lips who speak your name with admiration across the wide world? Perhaps it's the exponential growth of one's impact. Well, it can actually be many things. One is certain. It is recognizable instantly by a feeling you get in the presence of greatness. And that feeling is more tangible and more viral than any one qualifier. 75,000 souls gathered en masse to witness greatness on a chilly Easter Sunday evening, April 9th, 1939, with millions, yes, millions more huddled around radios throughout the world. Expectantly, they waited to hear the voice famed conductor Arturo Toscanini had touted, this is a voice one hears one in 100 years. This was a voice that could comfortably traverse three octaves and all at once appear rich, resonant, and singularly searing to the core of a listener's heart. This was the voice of Marian Anderson, and she was about to make history yet again. Elegantly enrobed in a long black mink coat, overtop an intricately beaded orange tailored shantung silk jacket, and floor length black velvet skirt with a small train, befitting the status of a classically trained opera singer who was beloved the world over, she descended the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and, with regality, stepped upon a wooden platform erected for the occasion. Her longtime accompanist, Kosti Vahanen, sat perched at a grand piano behind her, while the giant marble likeness of the great emancipator loomed over her shoulder. A bank of microphones laid her chin, and a hush fell over the sea of faces before her. She wrapped her fur coat around her against the April wind, closed her eyes, and began to sing. A quiet, humble person, Anderson often used we when speaking about herself. Years after the concert, she explained why. We cannot live alone, she said, and the thing that made this moment possible for you and for me has been brought about by many people whom we will never know. This is the story of Marion's extraordinary, divinely inspired capacity to lift the lives of others with her greatness. Her unparalleled talent, resolute character, and unwavering faith were the pillars upon which she built a lifetime of profound performance, impactful collaborations, and channels through which to champion other musicians and transcend racism. Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and, and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women, all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, nonlinear lives. I'm Katie Harmon, your host. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now. <laughs> I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women and for women. 
Let's unlock today's story, shall we? The array of devoted fans who waited breathlessly for Marion's first utterance that windy Easter Sunday were expecting a performance that would transform and transport them. After decades of dedication to her craft, immensely formative personal and professional experience, and acclaimed performance throughout the world, Marian Anderson was already a household name in 1939. Born on February 27, 1897, in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, she was the eldest of three girls. When Marion wrote her autobiography later in life, she began her story with a most telling sentence. Life with mother and father while he lived was a thing of great joy as I remember it now. It is easy to look back self-indulgently, feeling pleasantly sorry for oneself and saying, I didn't have this and I didn't have that. But that is only the grown woman regretting the hardships of a little girl who never thought they were hardships at all. Certainly there were a lot of things that she did not have, but she never misses them because she didn't really need them. She had the things that really mattered. Ooh, I love those words. She was just six years old when she became a choir member at the Union Baptist Church, where her father worked as a special officer in charge of ushers and other duties. It was there where she earned the nickname Baby Contralto, even though she regularly rehearsed all the parts, bass, tenor, and soprano. <laughs> the vocal classification of Contralto would become a trademark of Marion's throughout her lifetime, due to the richness and dynamism of her lower register. At age eight, her father, having also recognized his daughter's early prowess, bought a piano from his brother after it had gone unused far too long. Marion was transfixed by the instrument. She recounted, I was walking along the street one day, carrying a basket of laundry that I was delivering for my mother, when I heard the sound of a piano. I set down my basket, went up to the steps, and looked into the window. I knew it was wrong to peep, but I could not resist the temptation. I saw a woman seated at a piano, playing ever so beautifully. Her skin was dark like mine. I realized that if she could, I could. Marion adored her father, and he adored his daughters. He delighted in showing his daughters off, especially on Easter Sunday. Marion made mention of how he would make it a point to buy each of them a new bonnet, going to the shop to select them himself. Each daughter would have a unique bonnet adorned with ribbons and trimmed with flowers. But tragedy struck in 1909 when Marion's father was accidentally hit on the head while he worked at the South Philadelphia Reading Terminal. He lay ill for weeks before dying of heart failure just shortly after Christmas. Marion was nearly 13 years old. She, along with her mother and sisters, would endure a period of financial hardship from which she always sought refuge in singing and sharing her talents. The members of her family, church, and community heartily recognized her rare talent and surrounded her with unwavering support. This support would become the wellspring of financial assistance that would propel her talent to new heights. While still in high school, opera star Roland Hayes visited Union Baptist Church, and when he heard Marion sing, he hired her on the spot to perform on a small concert tour to black colleges and churches outside Philadelphia. Her congregation gave her a love offering of $17.02, 
with which to purchase a satin and hand-fashioned formal dress to wear on that tour. And when she graduated high school, her church took up a collection once again, this time for $500 to pay for private voice instruction by renowned and demanding voice teacher Giuseppe Boghetti. When Marion was first brought before Boghetti for an audition by a friend of her high school principal, he complained that he had no time, wanted no additional pupils, and was giving of his precious time to listen to this young person as a favor. But as soon as Marion concluded her selection of Deep River, he replied firmly, I will make room for you right away, and I will only need two years with you. After that, you will be able to go anywhere and sing for anybody. Giuseppe actually remained Marion's devoted teacher long into her storied career, and she credits him for shaping her into a high-caliber professional performer. As someone who spent more than three-fourths of my life in voice lessons, and then later as a teacher for the past 15 years, my heart leapt at Marion's account of her early lessons in her memoir. <laughs> she said, With Mr. Bogetti, I learned some of the songs I still sing today. Schubert and Brahms, and later Schumann and Hugo Wolf in German, songs by Rachmaninoff and other Russians, in English, Italian arias, songs in French, and songs in English by American and British composers. Like the best teachers, Mr. Bogetti was watchful for difficulties I might encounter in the course of certain songs. I might not be able to fit a word to a tone in just the right way, and he would concentrate on that passage. He would invent exercises not to be found in any book, but especially designed to overcome the problem. It was in Mr. Bogetti's studio, too, that I became aware of the meaning of professionalism for a public performer. There I learned that the purpose of all the exercises and labors was to give you a thoroughly reliable foundation and to make sure that you could do your job under any circumstances. There is no shortcut. You must understand the how and why of what you are doing. If you do, you can give an acceptable performance even when you are indisposed. <laughs> I, along with every singer and teacher, give this statement a round of applause in gratitude. Yes, Marianne! But it is well known that a teacher can only elicit greatness if the student possesses a willingness to work hard and an innate talent. Marion had both and much, much, much more. According to Marion, it was this juncture where she gained the confidence to believe singing could become her life's profession, and her horizons began to broaden accordingly. At age 22, she happened to be in Chicago during the first meeting of the newly formed National Association of Negro Musicians, NANN, in 1919. Marion recalled, the organization invited aspiring musicians. One afternoon, I sang. As soon as I finished, indeed, while I was still in the room, someone rose to make a motion that the association should help me with my musical education. The motion was seconded. People began raising their hands and pledging certain sums. Soon there were pledges about $1,000. And in that moment, Marian Anderson, rising star, became the organization's first ever scholarship recipient. Today, the NANM is heralded as the first major scholarship organization in the U.S. This financial assistance and vote of confidence from NANM allowed her to continue private studies and to begin touring professionally to black colleges and churches alongside talented pianist Billy King. Word of Marion and Billy's outstanding concerts spread. In 1924, she was invited to give her first professional recital in New York City's Town Hall. 
Giuseppe assured Marion she was ready, and Marion was confident that she had prepared accordingly. She said, I felt for all the world like a prima donna. But poor audience numbers and deflated confidence led to a lackluster performance, shadowed by stage fright. She woke the morning after the concert to disappointing reviews and returned to Philadelphia completely deflated. She said, I did not want to see any music. I did not want to hear any. I did not want to make a career of it. Do not misunderstand me. I deserved no more than I received, but I felt lost and defeated. The dream was over. But Marion would soon learn it was only just beginning. At Giuseppe's behest, she began to enter vocal competitions, and in 1925, she was propelled to stardom after winning first place in a prestigious vocal competition sponsored by the New York Philharmonic Symphony. She soared singing O Mio Fernando from Donizetti's opera La Favorita to capture the prize over 300 other singers. Not only did she garner the attention of music lovers, industry leaders, and critics, whose praise would be later echoed by the great Toscanini, quote, a remarkable voice was heard last night at the Lewison Stadium, one in a hundred thousand, wrote the New York Tribune. But Marion had also shattered a decades-long barrier as the first person of color to appear with the symphony. And a steady roll of engagements quickly flowed in, followed by Carnegie Hall for the first time. In 1927, she embarked on a wildly successful tour throughout Europe, including London, Paris, Berlin, and Stockholm, where her incredible interpretation of the music of Sibelius made her a Scandinavian star. She returned to New York in 1935 to give a homecoming concert at Town Hall the very venue that had made her doubt she could ever make it as a singer. Not only was the audience filled to the rafters, but her performance was a critical triumph. With the New York Times hailing, Marian Anderson has returned to her native land, one of the greatest singers of our time. By the late 1930s, Marian's voice had made her famous on both sides of the Atlantic. But prejudice would soon dog her, more frightfully and fiercely than ever. Despite her international renown, she was subject to discrimination while touring the United States. In 1937, she gave a performance at the McCarter Theater, a concert hall in Princeton, New Jersey. The performance drew a packed audience with glowing reviews, including the headline, Crowd Hears Concert Diva at Princeton. Marian Anderson has audience thrilled by her voice. Shockingly, afterward, she was denied a room in Princeton's Nassau Inn which held a whites-only policy. Living and working in Princeton, Dr. Albert Einstein happened to be an audience member at that particular concert. Hearing of the denial, he extended Anderson a personal invitation to stay at his home, marking the beginning of their unexpected friendship. On their first encounter, Marion recalled, I remember thanking him from the bottom of my heart, and he seemed just to sort of brush it aside. Dr. Einstein greeted one warmly and said, we are very happy that you can come and welcome into our home. For the next 18 years, Anderson stayed with Einstein whenever she was in town to give a concert. From all accounts, the connection Albert had with Marion was one built on genuine mutual respect. After all, genius recognizes genius. Two years later, Marion was scheduled to sing in Constitution Hall, the capital's foremost concert platform. 
But news soon rang out that the Daughters of the American Revolution, owners of the hall, chose to enforce a city-segregated audience policy, which thus barred Marion from performing there. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and several other members resigned from the DAR, and love for the internationally renowned contralto led to public outcry, spurning a campaign to move Marianne's concert to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The new concert venue is organized by Howard University, the NAACP, and a diverse plethora of fans and sponsors, with endorsement from the Roosevelt administration and Harold Eckes, Secretary of the Interior. He introduced Marion that historic day. Genius, genius draws no color line. She has endowed Marion Anderson with such a voice as lifts any individual above his fellows, as is a matter of exultant pride to any race. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. We are grateful to Miss Marian Anderson for coming here to sing to us today. Marian recounted the moment she stepped before the vast crowd of 75,000 to begin the concert. All I knew then as I stepped forward was the overwhelming impact of that vast multitude. There seemed to be people as far as the eye could see. The crowd stretched in a great semicircle from the Lincoln Memorial around the reflecting pool onto the shaft of the Washington Monument. I had a feeling that a great wave of goodwill poured out from these people, almost engulfing me. And when I stood up to sing our national anthem, I felt for a moment that I was choking. For a desperate second, I thought that the words, well as I knew them, would not come. But as soon as she closed her eyes, she saw the music instead, and the melody simply soared from her lips. She went on to say, I sang. I don't know how. <laughs> there must have been the help of professionalism I had accumulated over the years. Without it, I could not have gone through the program. All of the world bore witness to the greatness of Marian Anderson during that glorious 25 minutes of music. Alan Keeler, who wrote the official biography for Marian Anderson, said, You never heard in her voice a single tone of meanness, bitterness, blame. It was simply lacking, he says. There is something saintly in that, something deeply human and good. As Marian continued to sing, first, My Country Tis of Thee, then the aria, O Mio Fernando, that had won her acclaim in 1925, followed by Schubert's Ave Maria, which would later become one of her most requested pieces, as well as three spirituals. 
Those three spirituals were deliberate and a testament to Marian's unwavering faith. Marian's use of the phrase we and one to describe herself throughout her lifetime were in reference to a partnership between God and her soul. Marian was never without her deep faith in God and humanity, giving rise to her signature concert programming of operatic arias, art songs, and spirituals that spoke to the heart of Black culture and a life devoted to God. Faith was the binding agent for a long-hidden collaborative component born of sisterhood that would become one of the most impactful moments of that Easter Sunday concert in 1939. When Marian Anderson chose to close her program with an arrangement of My Soul is Anchored in the Lord by a fellow Black female virtuosa, Florence Price. A prodigy pianist and composer, Florence Price met Marian Anderson after she too had received a scholarship from NANN. The two became friends after Marian first sang Price's My Soul's Been Anchored in the Lord in an international broadcast from Prague on May 6, 1937. The significance of their sisterhood, and particularly that moment in history on Easter Sunday, was noted by author Alicia Lola Jones. Sustained by a web of Black women-inclusive networks, Black churches, Black women's clubs, Howard University, the NAACP, and NANM, Anderson ascended the stage, voicing Florence B. Price's composition as the final say on that landmark moment. The NANM is particularly important. Price met Anderson in the 1930s, and both women became deeply entrenched in a network of Black women artisans. They found refuge, exposure, and collaborative partners in Black musicians' guilds such as the NANM. Price went on to tailor 50 art songs and arrangements for Anderson, and in fact, following that Lincoln Memorial recital, Anderson often closed her recitals with My Soul's Been Anchored in the Lord, establishing it as a signature piece. Florence also knew a thing or two about breaking down barriers as a young, gifted Black woman. In 1903, when she was 16 years old, Florence was accepted at the New England Conservatory of Music, a prestigious integrated school. She graduated from the conservatory with honors at the age of 19. After leaving Boston, she taught music in Arkansas before moving to Atlanta, Georgia, where, in 1910, she became head of music at Clark Atlanta University, a historically Black institution. Her biographer wrote that she became a, quote, formidable teacher and a beacon of light for all her students. Her career flourished after moving to Chicago in 1929 during the Chicago Renaissance. The G. Shermer and McKinley Publishing Companies began to issue her songs, her piano music, and especially her instrumental pieces for piano. During that time, she also prolifically composed more than 300 works, including symphonies, organ works, piano concertos, works for violin, arrangements of spirituals, art songs, and chamber works. At the age of 45, Florence Price became the first woman to win the 1932 Wanamaker Competition for her Symphony in E Minor, also earning a second prize for her Piano Sonata in E Minor. And in June 1933, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra premiered her Symphony No. 1 to great acclaim, making her the first Black woman to have her music performed by a major symphony orchestra. But after she died of a stroke in 1953, the manuscript stored in the attic of her summer home on the outskirts of Chicago were left untouched for more than 50 years as the house fell into ruin. 
Florence's work became largely forgotten. In 2009, the house was purchased by a couple looking to flip it, and they discovered the treasure of works spilling out from the piano bench and under the lid. After the New York Times published an article about the find, the formerly hidden works of Florence Price made a tremendous resurgence, firmly solidifying Florence Price as one of the most important composers in history. Marian Anderson's life was also significantly influenced by another talented woman, Stephanie Schwartz Rupp. Steffi, as she was called by Marian, was the wife of her longtime accompanist, Franz Rupp. Steffi's career as a young, talented soprano was just starting to blossom as fascism took hold of her native Warsaw, Poland. After marrying Franz in 1930, the pair feared for the growing anti-Semitism taking hold over Europe, as Steffi was Jewish. They were able to escape to America in 1938, thanks to Franz's flourishing reputation as a pianist. Franz met Marion when she arrived in Washington, D.C., just weeks before her famous Lincoln Memorial concert, when he filled in for her ailing longtime accompanist, Costi, at engagements. The couple bonded with Marion over her love for German leader repertoire, and he became her regular accompanist in 1940 until her retirement. Behind the scenes, Steffi helped to coach Marion in preparation for that Easter Sunday and also served as vocal coach for another history-making performance. Two years after the death of her friend Florence Price, Marion would pierce through yet another historic barrier, becoming the first Black performer on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera in 1955. The extraordinary event unfolded after Marion attended a dinner party hosted by her longtime manager, Saul Hurrock, in September 1954. As Marion recounts, she was considering skipping the dinner party, but on the drive, she turned to her husband, Orpheus Fisher, and said, I have a strange feeling that we should go to the party and say hello. Then we can leave immediately. I'm sure that's best. A little side note here, Marion and Orpheus's romance is the stuff of another episode. (laughs) They were childhood sweethearts and then finally married in 1943. As Marion and Orpheus entered the party, she was greeted by Rudolf Bing, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. He very casually yet directly asked if there was anything she'd like to sing at the Met. Marion said she looked at him in surprise, thinking he couldn't be serious. While singing at the Met had always been a dream for her, she had long thought the opportunity had passed her by. As the conversation continued, Rudolph Bing mentioned that he and his team had been in negotiations with Saul for the past year and that they already had a part in mind for her. Ulrika, the sorceress in Verdi's Un Balo in Mascara, the masked ball. From there, the agreement was made and Marion stayed at the party long into the night. The next morning, contracts were drafted and preparations began. Marion had the most lovely memories of her experience. She said, there was a wonderful family feeling in all the preparations. I was not wholly unfamiliar with the Metropolitan Opera stage, for I had sung concerts from it on a number of Easter Sundays. And yet, it looked entirely different when the sets were up and we were assembled for the dress rehearsal. I kept thinking of the words a member of the administration staff had spoken to me when I had arrived that afternoon in October for the signing of the contract. Welcome home, he said simply, and home it had become, thanks to the goodwill of everyone connected with the company. 
At nearly 60 years old, her performance was met with thunderous applause on opening night, and she considered it a childhood dream finally come true. She went on to say, the chance to be a member of the Metropolitan has been a highlight of my life. It has meant so much to me and to my people. If I had been privileged to serve as a symbol, to be the first to sing as a regular member of the company, I take greater pride from knowing it has encouraged other singers of my group to realize that the doors everywhere may open increasingly to those who have prepared themselves well. There are young singers of exceptional talent, such as, to name a few, Camilla Williams, Lawrence Winters, Leontine Price, Lenore Lafayette, and Matilda Dobbs, who have sung with important opera companies in our country and abroad. There will be others. One does not expect them to be accepted because they are Black. One hopes that they will be welcomed only for their worth. I am grateful to the Metropolitan for the tactful way in which the entire thing was managed, and I will never forget the wholehearted responsiveness of the public. I may have dreamed of such things, but I had not foreseen that I would play a part in the reality. Marion would not only pave the way for other singers, but she would become their devoted champion. She would regularly invite up-and-coming opera singers to her beloved farm in Danbury, Connecticut, to offer encouragement and even loan out dresses on occasion. Renowned opera stars Leontine Price, Jesse Norman, and Denise Graves credited Marion Anderson as their inspiration, paying tribute to her throughout their careers. Marion's acclaim and renown continued to grow as she was welcomed in remote parts of the world that few performers dared to go. She was appointed to serve as a delegate to the United Nations Human Rights Committee and as a goodwill ambassador by President Eisenhower. And in 1957, she achieved another historic musical triumph when she traveled nearly 39,000 miles, performing 24 concerts in 14 countries over three and a half months on behalf of the U.S. State Department. She made notable appearances in countries like India, Vietnam, Thailand, Burma, and Korea. The tour was beautifully documented by Edward Murrow for the CBS television series, See It Now, and later made into an album titled The Lady from Philadelphia. I personally own a vinyl copy of the album and have poured over it. To me, it is such an engaging audio account, and I love every single minute of it. My favorite moment from this tour was while Marion was in Bombay, India, and she performed the aria Mon Coeur Souvois Te Voix from the opera Samson and Delilah. What set this particular performance apart was that Marion was accompanied by an entirely volunteer orchestra made up of local farmers, doctors, scholars, and students. It was an incredibly touching highlight on the tour, and they sound glorious. You absolutely must hear, in Marion's own voice, her introduction of this performance. Six months ago, one did not dream that we would be singing with 60 Indian musicians. But last July, we received a communication through the Anta people that there was a newly formed Western Symphony in Bombay, and that they would like to accompany us if we could send them one of our scores for them to work on. We were delighted, and several pounds of Western music went eastward by mail. When we arrived in Bombay on the 12th of November, we discovered that the rehearsing was still going on, and we were expected. 
As far as we know, this is the only symphony orchestra between Tokyo and Tel Aviv. And it is one that we will remember with much fondness, always. The conductor, Mr. De Silva, is a lawyer from Goa. And the string section is made up of clerks, civil servants, and housewives, teachers, and four doctors. Uh, the percussionist is an able-bodied seaman and a most handsome Sikh. The entire woodwind and brass sections come from the Indian Navy, augmented by several policemen. There was no harp or English horn because these instruments simply do not exist in India, where all Western instruments are difficult to come by. We rehearsed part of one night and much of the next day with the orchestra and gave the concert that same evening. It is now my very great honor to present to my fellow Americans the Bombay City Orchestra in Mon Coeur from Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saëns. For me and millions of other fans, that recording and her performance of this aria epitomizes yet another facet of the true greatness of Marian Anderson, her purpose-filled desire to celebrate and share her culture alongside the cultures of others. In 1959, Marian Anderson received an honorary degree from Princeton University, becoming the first Black woman to do so in Princeton's 212-year history. Although Einstein had since passed away, she once again stayed in their home. Albert's granddaughter took the opportunity to express her gratitude for Marion's impact. She said, hundreds of people will come to thank you and wish you well. I am one of them. Please allow me to tell you something I never spoke out before. It was years ago. I did not know what was waiting for me. When you encountered the stage, I immediately felt your whole personality, your dignity, your center, and beauty. Something cut deep into my heart. It was like pain. In the middle of the night, I woke up. Tears were running down my face. I cried as when the pain of the whole world came out of me. It never happened before. In 1961, she sang at President Kennedy's inauguration and then received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Kennedy in 1936. Seven months later, in an incredibly full circle moment, she sang once again from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at the side of Martin Luther King Jr. for the March on Washington, where he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. Martin Luther King Jr. was a child in attendance with his parents that Easter Sunday in 1939. She began her farewell tour in 1964 and ended it with a performance at Carnegie Hall on Easter Sunday in 1965. Following her retirement, she moved with her husband to her beloved 155-acre farm in Connecticut. She received the UN Peace Prize in 1977, the Kennedy Center Honors Lifetime Achievement Award in 1978, the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award in 1984, and a Grammy Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1991. 
she moved to Portland, Oregon to live with her nephew in 1992. I recently had the great privilege of interviewing Jeanette DePriest, wife of the late James DePriest, renowned and longtime conductor of the Oregon Symphony for 23 years, and Marion Anderson's beloved only nephew. Marion came to live with James and Jeanette in Portland during the years before her peaceful death at the age of 96 in 1993. Jeanette shared so many wonderful personal stories of Aunt Marion. Tell me your relationship with Marian Anderson. I met Marian Anderson in the late 70s when I first met my husband. Uh, we used to go to her ranch or her farm in Denbury for the holidays, basically, whether it was the 4th of July or Christmas or Easter, because Jimmy's mother, who is her sister, used to spend time with her during those special moments. So we would gather and that's how I got to meet her. And we clicked. I mean, it's one of those things. We just, she became a best friend. We had a wonderful time together and she ended up being signing my wedding contract, actually. <laughs> I have her on my wedding certificate as my witness. Oh so my goodness. It is. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. How long had you known her before you and James were married? I hadn't known much about her because, you know, I was born and raised in Quebec City in Canada. And by the time I met her, I was in my 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and she was already in her 80s. So this diva career thickness was well passed, and she was just of Marion. So obviously, through knowing her more in depth, I've learned a great deal about her career, but was never really there to follow her path when she was in the thick of things. So. Absolutely. She was retired by that point. Yeah, yeah. She was really auntie. We used to call her, her auntie. And Jimmy used to call her Auntie Mern, which I thought was so cute. <laughs> auntie Mern. What was the what was the origin of that? Of of Mern. I think it's it stemmed from Marianne, Marion, Mern, Mern. You know, sometimes when you talk a lot faster than you should, those little syllables or whatever are bunched up together. And Jimmy loved to hear Auntie Mern, and she adored that too. I must say, it was fun. It was a little communication between the two of them. That is incredibly sweet. Yeah, it, it feels like something that you would say as a child, as you're when you're learning someone's name from there, because you know you have to understand that Jimmy was the child of a generation, mm -hmm. never had cousins or brothers and sister, obviously, and it was the son that Marianne never had. So uh, they were very, very close. And yes. What was their personal relationship when the cameras were off, when there was no performance in sight, when she was living with you in Portland in your apartment? What was their relationship like? It was, it was a very, very close relationship. It was a relationship of an adoring aunt to her nephew and vice versa. I have to tell you a funny story when you talk about Portland. When she was living with us, we would bring her during the dress rehearsal to the Oregon Symphony. 
with, with her. And, and we didn't want anybody to be distracted with the fact that Marian Anderson was in the concert house. So we would put her on the balcony level in the dark. But the, the musician knew she was there and she loved it. And after that, there was a shop in Portland that was, Aunt Marian was one of those women who loved like her nephew, a little bit of junk food from time to time. And her favorite dish was hot dogs. And there was a small shop close to the concert house called Good Dog, Bad Dog. I know it well. <laughs> you know, great yes. sauces, wonderful hot dogs. So one day, all of us decided after the rehearsal to get Aunt Marian a hot dog. So Jimmy was on the spicy side of things, and he didn't know if Aunt Marian was also on the spicy side of things. So he ordered two different hot dogs, one for Amy. We all ordered one, but one from her and, and a spicier from, for him. And Switch didn't realize he had switched the order and gave it to Aunt Mary. And when he had his first bite on his hot dog, he said, Auntie, I think I made a mistake. He said, I think I gave you my hot dog. It's my two spices. So she looked at him. She said, if you ever touch that thing, I slap you. <laughs> she she. Didn't have, she didn't want to hear things. She just loved it and ate it all. And he was looking at her and saying, you spicy food? She said, well, I do. <laughs> she was spicy. Lovely incident. She said, if you ever touch that thing, I'll slap you. <laughs> How much did James talk about watching his Aunt Marion's debut at the Metropolitan Opera? He has, he's recounted that in a number of interviews, but, and he was, quite young. He was just so proud of her. So proud of her and very touched with the reception that she had with the public. I mean, she she didn't have by any mean a major role in that, you know, the, the mask ball, the sorcerer is not necessarily your prime star. But the fact that the people in the hall recognized her as being the diva she used to be at 57 years old. And it's not an area that is easy. Yeah. This area is not easy. Mm -hmm. They stood and applauded her when the, the curtain opened. And that's not something you see. And that, Jimmy said, it just took my breath away. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. But it was quite a moment, I gather. I wish I would have been there. Me too. <laughs> there's, another, there's another incident that I wish I had been there. Once she was with us in Oregon, we used to have this lovely home in the, in the West Hill, uh, the, the Northwest part. And we were overlooking the Multnova uh, Athletic Club and the baseball stadium and all that. And the Lincoln, what used to be a field right there. <clears throat> and um, Billy Graham came in town with his crusades. And she had met Billy Graham's many times. So she knew that he was going to have all the concerts and there were tons of kids and choirs gathering all over the place. They have organized screen and sound systems so they could sing together. We were in Europe. But my, the, the nurse who was taking care of her at the time, she said, I bundled her up sat down on the, the terrace that we had 
with, and she was listening to it. And she said, all of a sudden, I'm sitting next to her and she starts singing along. And she said, I cry. I said, don't tell me that. I'm going to kill myself. I just, at 95, she was singing with the hymns and the, the songs that they were. And she said, it was the most amazing moment. And she said, she still had a beautiful voice at 95. Wow. There. <laughs> there was always the humble Marion that a lot of people didn't quite understand because she had, as you said, such a persona and she was so bigger than life throughout her, her career. And at one point in time, people would criticize her because during many of the interviews, she would say we, meaning, you know, the queen kind of thing. And at one point, somebody asked her about it and she talks to me about that. She said, you know, when you're given that gift, it's a collaboration. She said, I was never alone in this. I could not take it all to myself. So the Lord was with me and we were partners. So the we included the Lord who gave her that incredible voice, which she was able to develop over the years and also pursue a career against all odds at this point in time in the, our life's history or our country history. So the we referred to a partnership more than the we, the queen size kind of thing. And it was a lot of time misunderstood. But she said, I was never about to claim that fame and that success by myself. I had somebody behind me and it was the Lord who gave me that voice. And she said, he was going to be my partner. What else do you wish that people knew about Aunt Marion that has not been talked about? You and I have talked so much about the plethora of biographies and, and news stories. And certainly there's so much press that has surrounded these, these very distinct points in her career. But what would you like for people to know about Marion? Marion was a home book. Mm. Okay. She loved to garden. She loved her animals, any kind. Um, and she had a fabulous sense of humor. Oh, really? She cracked me up a lot of times, especially when the two sisters were together and they would recall things. We laughed and laughed and laughed. And she was the leader in that. So there is one thing that in many ways at this stage in my life, when I met Marion, I met Marion. Not the Marion. I met Marion. And that is something that I find even richer as, as a, a little treasure because that's a part that nobody really knows about her. I can pick pieces of her career all over the place and understand what made her the Marion and the son that she was. But nobody really understood Mary. Yes. And there is a difference there. I think. And that is a gift. Yeah. To be able to see Privilege. someone 
Completely. Yes, absolutely. And was she, was she grateful for that as well to be surrounded by at that stage in her life and her career by others who desired to know her, not just that's Marion the singer. I think at her stage in her career. And that's one thing that she used to tell me. She said, you know, when you reach a certain level of stats, she always used, and then I thought it was such a great analogy. She said, you know, it's like a big whale that goes through the ocean. And what is the better way to travel than to be attached on the back of the big whale? Meaning little fish or medium fish would just stick on her and just go around and she's my best friend and I've known her forever. And Marion is, you know. She's magnetic. She, she was being a circle of, of supporter and admirer and she really respected that. And I think she accepted that fact that they had so much respect for her that she was not about to disappoint them because she was obviously a product of that in many ways and to the fault of nobody she had to enter that oh you know my name is Marian Anderson my name is and the next thing is Marian is my best friend <laughs> had a lot of people around her circle that would just be pushed by the current that she was creating not necessarily a true friendship. That's right. So the fact that she was among her family at the last stage of her life, she died with us in our home, holding hands together. And it was the most beautiful departure for Marion. I could tell that she was peaceful. She was ready. We said goodbye. And she just left. And I think, I think also you can see that when she started her career, mm -hmm. you can see that in order for her to stand against all the obstacles she had to endure, mm -hmm. she would always refer to God, to prayer, to, you know, she would always say, stay with me, please, Lord, help me through this. And the fact that she was able to soar through all this, she knew that the push that she would receive was from above. She had the pushes from below, but it was because <laughs> probably Dolores said, hey, help me there. And in many ways, it never, it never left her. It was, when I was talking about collaboration, it was really a collaboration. What do you recall were her favorite spirituals to sing? Or what was her what were her favorite things to sing that she talked about in her later latter years? Maybe a, a special moment that she did not express in interviews or or in her autobiography. What was it that she told you in in kind of those still quiet moments that were her favorites? Marion, when she started her career wanted to be an opera singer, which she never did. The only role that she had was the famous role. So if you ask me where, what, 
were her favorite deep down was probably those great arias that she could have sung. Mm. The leader obviously were, you know, taken upon her. But if you look at all the work she had to do in order to understand them and technically in not only in terms of language, but the meaning of it. And, and it was a arduous period of her life in Europe where she had to study. Um, I think her favorite spiritual is the crucified my Lord. And when you hear that, I mean, it, it just grabs me. I cannot listen to Marian singing that, that in without having my eyes just, you know, wet and, and getting ready to shed a, lot, a few tears. I mean, the way she grabbed this, it, it is just stunning. She's always done it that way, and I encourage people to go and search for that. You will understand what I'm talking about. I have never heard, and God knows how many talents we have in this world, um, this rendition, this, this, this um, ranching rendition of that in by anybody else but her. A lot of what you're going to see of Marianne in footage and, and things like that, you'll see her singing with her eyes closed. And I think part of it was shutting everything outside so that she could reach inside emotionally and render what she felt wow. into her. At one point, I know that in Russia, she uh, had many encores, and the last one, she said, okay, I'm going to sing the Crucify My Lord, which was an hymn. Nobody knows that in Russia. No. <laughs> so she just sang that. And at the end, she opened her eyes. Everybody was singing. Oh. Everybody was in awe. It took, she said, an eternity for them to react. But she said, at the end, everybody stood up and applauded. She said, I thought I had made a mistake by singing that song because nobody reacted. They were just frozen in place, but they were so moved by the rendition I was telling you about. Yes. That they were shocked. They didn't know how to. And all of a sudden somebody uh, just burst and, and, and applauded. And they all stood up and applauded and applauded and applauded. And it's one thing that I remember, and that also was a, a tremendous moment in my life, is when um, we had a memorial at the Carnegie Hall for Marion, because the director of the Carnegie Hall had requested that. And I think that Marion was such an important part of saving the building to begin with. So obviously, uh, the management of the hall said, don't worry about anything. Well, it will be under invitation and then blah, blah, blah. Well, all of the divas of this world volunteered <laughs> to sing for Marion on her memorial. Wow. Which presented a slight problem. I'm <laughs> sure. That wanted to sing. <laughs> so Timmy said, okay, we'll solve that. So we had the stage. There was a piano. A... Um, a stand, her favorite roses. Marion at the beginning of her career, life size in terms of a poster, 
middle of her career and at the end of her life. And when it became time to have somebody sang, sing, Marianne sang. Oh, really? So you had audio recordings, right? Sony had cleaned quite a bit of her old recording, which they did such a fabulous job. And obviously there is one that is circulating right now as a table uh, book with all of Marianne's recording in it, and which is stunning. And it's done by Sony. And I think it won something like a Grammy or something about that. And I, I have to tell you, I had to leave the, the place where I was sitting in the car. I was bald. I was, I mean, it's almost like all of that emotion and that intimacy that I had with Marion in the last year of her life just burst, just burst. It's almost like this, you've never known me as an artist, but honey, I'm gonna show you how I could sing. And it was incredible. And yet again, everybody in the, 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 the Carnegie Hall stood silent for a good 30 seconds. And all of a sudden somebody said, bravo, started. And that, that's when I lost it. <laughs> when I lost it. That is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, this woman never ceased to amaze me in terms of what the requests, the inquiries, the documentaries, the books, the this and that um, keeps popping up. She would have been 125 years old this year. Amazing. And she's still very popular. So bravo to Marion. Absolutely. <laughs> bravo, Marion. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, I could have talked with Jeanette for hours more. <laughs> and if ever I am asked who I would wish to spend a day in conversation with, it would unquestionably be Marion Anderson. My admiration for Marion runs deep, as does my respect and gratitude for how she led with compassion and demonstrated over and over again throughout her illustrious lifetime what true greatness is, does, and sounds like. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share, as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. For links to songs referenced in today's episode, please head over to the show notes. I also encourage you to follow Virtuosa Society's Instagram at Virtuosa Society for even more bonus materials, including beautiful photographs of Marion, Florence, and Steffi, as well as video of Marion's performances and performances of Florence works by various artists. My deepest thanks to Jeanette DePriest for generously sharing about Aunt Marion in such a touching conversation. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production, written and produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title music is by Anna Lonstrom. <laughs>